Hello everyone, so now in this episode I'm going to be talking about religion, believers, theists, unbelievers, non-believers, and the rest of my views on Jesus. So as I have been thinking about my life, regarding religion moving forward. I recognize that um, I understand that some people convert. Some people who start off as unbelievers, non-believers become believers and theists. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all the other religions. They and some people who are a member of one religion um, convert to another religion. Some Muslims become Christians. Some Christians become Muslims. Some Muslims become Judaism. Some of those in Judaism become Muslims, and some in Judaism become Christians. Some Christians turn to Judaism. I mean. I do acknowledge that these realities exist. I also acknowledge that you have some unbelievers, non-believers, they may convert to each religion over time. They may go from one house of worship to another totally different house of worship. And some people convert to denominations like if you're a Baptist, you may become Catholic or if you're Catholic, you may become Episcopalian, so on and so forth. So I'm acknowledging that all these differences happen because it's not a recent phenomenon. It's been happening for thousands of years. Um, And I can honestly say that I've met people who have all these realities existing that I'm outlining to you, to those that don't know. The ones that do know, be happy that I know. And the reason why I start off that way is because lately I've been um, learning more about the world of religion. I've been a student of religion, all religions and all denominations, And I noticed the human condition that is diversely approached regarding each religious denomination. And I've even been studying how unbelievers and non-believers approach the human condition. You have the faith-based way. That's what the religious texts are for. And you have the secular way. That's how you get uh, non-religious philosophies, ideologies on the human condition and human self-reflection. So I um, came to the conclusion that I truly have a heart for secular community and the faith-based community. Both are part of my 
noble character building. Um, And I'll tell you how. With faith-based people, they're more into doing, thinking, seeing, feeling, and being the impossible. And not limiting yourself to external physicality. But to first capture the impossible in your heart and it and eventually becomes real because of conviction. So that though those aspects of the faith-based world I actually live by. Secular community, they're more into um you must be analytical. You must fact check, double check, triple check, quadruple check, and more than quadruple check. You have to have peer reviews. You have to do hypotheses. You have to read books more than just a religious text. You have to read other literature to get a better understanding of what of the contents of the religious text so you can ultimately get to truths. The truths could be metaphorical, allegorical, metaphysical, symbolic. And truth can actually be historical, actual, factual, and of realism. So those aspects of the secular community, I take with me too. I take the best of both worlds. Um, Because in the faith-based community, not, what's the best way to put it? In the faith-based community, what I like about the faith-based community is that they, um, Be open to unexplainable phenomenons that make you so speechless because it is just so immeasurably outstanding. There are aspects of life that are unexplainably outstanding. You can't make sense of it. It's just beautiful that it occurs and still occurs. So from the faith-based world, I take that. And from the secular world, what I also take is doubt doesn't have to be your enemy. Doubt can be your friend if you use it right. Skepticism doesn't have to taint your, your heart. Skepticism can be a gift because you don't want to be gullible. So that part of the secular community I take in, right? So there are qualities of both worlds that I need for my life 
that I absorb and live out for myself. I feel like both worlds have plenty of people who are studious. They're teachers and students. So those so that's what those both worlds have in common. You have people in those worlds who really do apply um, intellectual virtues and they both are into wisdom regarding how to make wholesome decisions in life, in every area of life. Now, there may be differences between the two on how to go about wisdom and intellectual virtues, but there's wholesome decision-making happening in both worlds. It's not the same definition because the two communities are not completely the same. Difference in this case does not mean nefariousness. It just means that it's, it means diversity. There's more than one way to do what's right in life, usually, for the most part. And what I also like is that there's more than one type of healthy choice to make. So I had to think about that when I was thinking about the world of um, faith and the world of people who may not call themselves of faith. Now, I'm the type of person that I used to watch deconstruction and deconversion videos from religion And because I've watched every kind, there's nothing more for me to learn. And I'm not saying that arrogantly, but they all say the same thing. They just reword themselves many times, many ways, but they always make the similar same statements. And I feel that way about people who convert to religion, who were a part of a religion or were unbelievers, non-believers, now they are practicing a religion. And I don't watch that con that kind of content anymore because I learned nothing new from that too. Because again, they also say the same things, reword themselves many times different in many times, many ways, but they make the same and similar statements. So I don't watch conversion to religion videos anymore because I've learned everything there is need to learn about those subjects because for years I've just been reading and reading and um, watching documentaries and watching YouTubers. And I come to the conclusion that if there's nothing more for me to learn, I'm no longer interested in said subjects. I'm only interested if I keep, if there keeps being new insights, I'll keep being interested, but there, 
I haven't seen any new insights that make me go, ooh, I got to keep watching Converged Religion videos and Deconstruction and Deconversion Religion videos. I'm done. With, I'm done with those, the, those contents. And plus, I'm not concerned about what faith you're a part of, and I'm also not concerned about what faith you're not a part of. In other words, whether you're faith or not, that's not a fixation of mine. My fixation is, are you harmful or harmless? That's my concentration. And then I know it's time to talk about what will be my relationship with House of Worship moving forward. Um, I'm going to say new things. I must admit there are plenty of churches that are living up to Jesus' teachings extraordinarily well. There are mosques that are living up to moral excellence. There are temples living up to moral excellence. There are synagogues living up to moral excellence. There are centers living up to moral excellence. There are monasteries living up to moral excellence. They are. When I say that there are plenty of churches living up to Jesus' teachings, they're living up to Jesus' version of moral excellence. So I'm acknowledging that there are houses of worship that if you attend them, if you serve in them ministerially in ministries, it's um, an internally, externally rewarding experience. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the world's definitions of rewarding internally, externally. I'm talking about the joy that's inside is also shown outside. So there are houses of worship that are thriving correctly. And for all the right reasons, they're thriving. They are people-centered, heart-centered. And because they are true to um, God and they don't misuse God to torture anybody... Um, that's why they're prospering from a standpoint of the Good Samaritan focus. So, Those are the houses of worship that I would love to do um, work together with. I'm not interested in 
making them all agree with me on everything because I don't care about that. What I'm interested in is how can I help those houses of worship continue to stay the wonderful aspects of life that they are. Um, I'm not into all or nothing thinking because I can acknowledge that a lot of good has come from the faith-based community, from religion. So religion is not completely bad because there are plenty of um, kind-hearted people in each religion and denomination. Um, I do my best to avoid extremism in thought, word, deed, and action. Um, In the past, it was harder for me not to... It was harder for me to avoid extremism because of what I didn't understand. Now that I understand how dangerous extremism is, I do my best not to engage in monolithic thinking. I do my best not to be addicted to group thinking and the herd mentality. I do my best to avoid uh, cult thinking and cult living. I do my best to acknowledge that I'm not into binary thinking. I'm not into black and white thinking. I'm into nuances. I'm into gray areas. I'm into contradictions. I'm into complexities. I'm into complications. I'm into the murky, muddied waters. I'm into the fog. I'm into the wind. I'm into the blizzards. I'm into mysteries, I'm into uncertainty, um, because I recognize that every person in each religion, each house of worship, each denomination, they don't all think the same. They don't all live the same. They don't all believe the same. So... There are plenty of believers and theists who get along well with unbelievers and non-believers, not because they're, they totally live alike, because obviously they don't, but they're traveling in similar directions in life. Not every destination they land in together, but a lot of destinations in life they arrive at together. Um... And then as for like religious texts, there are beautiful parts of all religious texts. Then there are aspects of religious texts that would definitely be questionable to the United Nations because of human rights concerns. So I'm acknowledging even the nuances of all religious texts. There are parts of religious texts that are symbolic then there are parts of religious texts that are real. So you have truth that actually happened in real time, and then you have symbolic truths. It's true, but it's but it's a poetic truth. It may not have actually happened, but the wisdom you get from it is the truth. 
the insights you get from it is the truth too. So there's, so truth is not always like the whole, well, for example, Sojourner Truth was a historical person. That's the truth. No pun intended, I know her last name. But let's say I tell a story about a a lion who danced in the rain. Obviously, that's not real. Historically, but metaphorically, what if I'm comparing myself to... I have a warrior's heart. I just use the lion as the metaphor. But even as a warrior, sometimes... I have to endure in unpleasant circumstances, but I'm the ple- I'm what's pleasant in the unpleasant circumstances. I'm redeeming the environment. I'm redeeming the community. I'm I'm redeeming the streets. I'm altering the circumstances for personal growth, spiritual growth purposes. So that's what I mean when I say I'm a lion that's dancing in the rain. There's wisdom and insights that make that story metaphorically true. Now, Sojourner Truth, there's, there is photography that shows that, yes, she was an actual abolitionist. She was a temperance movement member. She was against the death penalty. Um... She was a women's rights champion. So there is at there is actual documentation of her doing these things and being about these things. So truth there's more than one type of truth in life. And I came to the conclusion that there has been The concept of absolute truth is, there's a plurality to it. Because there's the religious definition of it. The the religious people say that God is the absolute truth. And all absolute truths come from God. Then there's secular people who go, hmm, your definition of absolute truth I may disagree with because secular people say that 
We don't know more than we actually do know. We're more ignorant than knowledgeable. The more you know, the more you don't know. They'll say, but if you, if you, if so if that's true, you can't have absolute truth because there's no absolute certainty to have one, you gotta have the other. And then there are some people in the middle who go, well, what if absolute truth was about all positive character traits? What if those are the absolute truths that peep, some people in the, in the middle between religious and faith-based, they may find that middle ground that works for them. Like absolute truth to me may mean that no matter what I go through, that may be immeasurably difficult. I should never stop being neighborly. I should never stop developing as a human being. I should never stop respecting myself and respecting others. Some people find absolute certainty and absolute truth in those human virtues. But each person defines absolute truth and absolute certainty differently. Some people may look at absolute truth as actually happening. Some people look at absolute truth as metaphorically happening. And some people may reject absolute truth. And some people may reject absolute certainty. Some people may say, well, absolute certainty is actually happening. Some people may say that absolute certainty is metaphorically happening, right? So those are the aspects of um, absolute truth, absolute certainty that many people have diverse interpretations on. Some people may say, the religious people, that absolute certainty, absolute truth is real because God is real. Regardless of who and what we don't understand in life, ultimately God is understandable in terms of what we need to understand about God. Therefore, absolute certainty comes from God and absolute truth comes from God. That's a religious version. Then you have some people who will say that, well, absolute truth, absolute certainty can be actual and metaphorical. Some people say, well, it could be more actual. What could be more metaphorical? Some people say it's neck and neck. So I'm learning these diverse ways of thinking about those concepts. And um, it's profoundly enlightening to me. I learned another... um, concept and I'll get into more house of worship than I'll get into Jesus. I also learned that when it comes to um, unbelievers and non-believers, every community in terms of each member of it, they don't agree on everything and they may not have the same beliefs. And they may 
disagree with each other's interpretations on any given subject. So unbelievers and non-believers are not monolithic. And the same happens for believers and theists. They may not agree on everything. They may not believe the same beliefs. And they may not agree with each other's interpretations on everything. So believers and theists are not monolithic either. Um, you have believers, theists, unbelievers, and non-believers who they agree on some things and disagree on other things. They, in certain cases, they may agree more than disagree. They may disagree more than agree. And the same happens internally in terms of unbelievers, non-believers, and the same thing happens internally to believers and theists. And so that has been fascinating for me to understand. And then um, I, I recognize that for me, getting into like houses of worship, as a champion for human rights that I am, as a champion for equal rights, civil political rights, economic, social, cultural rights that I am, as a champion of environmentalism and champion of safeguarding animals that I am, I recognize that there are houses of worship that need my help because there are houses of worship who have those same values that I have. I don't need them to agree with me on everything for me to work with them. But I can definitely see myself some Sundays, some Saturdays, some Mondays, some Tuesdays, some Wednesdays, some Thursdays, some Fridays being in their four walls. It could be less than four walls. It could be more than four walls. I'm not concerned about the square feet nor mileage. But I could see myself in those four walls doing human rights projects with them, doing animal protection projects with them, doing environmentalism projects with them, doing civil political rights projects with them, doing economic, social, cultural rights projects with them. So some, some, it could be sometimes throughout the week and throughout the weekend, some weekends, some weekdays, I could see myself um, being a part of their worship services, um, being a part of their choir rehearsal practices, being a part of their congregational meetings, um, uh, being a part of their um, I'm just deeply thinking I can see myself being a part of their you know religious text studies you know Bible studies, Quran studies Torah studies what have you I can see myself being in the four walls sometimes because I had to recognize that 
I mean the religious community no harm. I mean the faith-based community no harm. I mean the spirituality community no harm. I'm not trying to change every belief and every tenet of each and every faith-based community. I'm not trying to change all the beliefs and tenets of all denominations, all religions, because I am disinterested in those things. Those things are not stumbling blocks for me. What I am saying is that I do doubt out loud sometimes, but it comes from a unity heart. It doesn't come from a polarity heart. Um, I'm not into polarization. I'm into unification. And I had to be real with myself and say, well, I think my story can actually be helpful to the world of faith, not just the world of secularism. It's helpful to them too. But even the world of faith can relate to what I'm saying, not just secular people. You know, secular people do relate to what I'm saying. And I recognize that my thought patterns are not just attractive to secular people, even though they are. My thought patterns are attractive to people of faith too because people are human. No matter what your views on religion are, People that haven't had an easy life can say, you know what, Antonio? There are things that you say and the thoughts that you think out loud that resonate with me, that are relevant to me, and that are relatable to me. So, also because I have to do projects with that community, I could see myself in you know, working with entities that are atheistic, agnostic, and humanistic. Um, I could see myself at their conventions from time to time. I could see myself at their um, seminars and events from time to time because I have to do human rights projects animal protection projects, environmentalism projects, civil political rights projects, economic, social, cultural rights projects with unbelievers and non-believers as well. So I could see myself um, thriving in those worlds too, just like I'll be thriving in the faith-based world. I could see myself doing interfaith coalitions and alliances. I could see myself doing faith-based slash secular alliances, meaning It's a collection of faith-based people and secular people doing good and greater good together for the beloved global communities. And I could see myself doing partnerships with the faith-based community. I could see myself doing partnerships with the secular communities. Partnerships basically mean I do good with faith-based persons and I also do good with secular persons. Um, When I talk about good and great good, I'm basically talking about servant leadership. I'm talking about social entrepreneurship, using business to resolve the ills of the world, right? So I can see myself doing those things. Now, I won't always be in houses of worship, and I won't always be in secular environments either, right? Now... The moment that we've all been waiting for. So what are my views on Jesus? 
When I was in the crime world, I remember meeting many of the loved ones of criminals. And even though they distanced themselves from their criminal loved ones, the loved ones of these criminals uh, decided to continue to pray for them from a distance and love them God's way from a distance according to the to uh, the biblical creeds. So I remember meeting their loved ones and they um because I was surrounded by adults, they didn't think, oh, I got to talk to your parents. Because when I was around, I, I knew that they were friends and family. Well, former friends and actual family of, the crim- of these criminals. But I wasn't surrounded by criminal adults all the time. I was no, I was roaming the streets, so I was surrounded by adults who would roam the streets with me. So that's why they never thought to um, take me home because adults would give me rides home. They would I would hang out in their home, so there was no suspicion on their part because of it. But these uh, loved ones of these criminals, we bonded over our shared love for um, spiritual gifts. For example, we would bond over our love for the church and how to help the church. And I remember that these loved ones of these criminals, they were the very, they, they were the second uh, source of spiritual gifts and encouragement. My grandma was number one. They, the loved ones of these criminals said to me, you are an apostle, you're a prophet, you're an evangelist, you're a pastor, you're a teacher. You do exhortation, you do giving, you do leading, you do service, you do mercy, you do word of wisdom, you do word of knowledge, you do faith, you do gifts of healings, you do working of miracles, you do visions, you do discerning of spirits, you do uh, speaking in tongues, you do interpretation of tongues, you do helps, you do administration, all because I demonstrated all these spiritual gifts to them in their presence while they were talking. They also said to me that you have the spiritual gifts of fellowship, hospitality, intercession, marriage, effective witnessing, um, composing spiritual music, poetry, and prose, interpretation of dreams, craftsmanship, such as the special abilities given to artisans who constructed the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 35, verses 30 to 33. And um, I remember they also said that I had the spiritual gift of celibacy, but I didn't know what that meant. 
they just mentioned all the spiritual gifts. I didn't even bother to ask. I was just so thankful that they were pointing out the spiritual gifts. Some people should would have said, well, at least when you're of age, they should have said that. And I agree. But sometimes when people are, some people are so happy to mean well, they get carried away. Um, and I think that's what happened. But they meant well. I demonstrated all these spiritual gifts to them. And that these uh, all these other spiritual gifts to them in my in their presence too, and so basically, we did prophecy together, serving together, teaching together, exhortation together, giving together, leadership together, mercy together. We did word of wisdom together, word of knowledge together, faith together, gifts of healings together, miracles together, prophecy together, distinguishing between spirits together tongues together, interpretation of tongues together. We were each other's apostles, each other's prophets, each other's teachers, each other's each other's miracles, each other's kinds of healings, each other's helps, each other's administrations, each other's tongues, each other's each other's pastors, each other's evangelists, whoever speaks, whoever renders service. That's what we did together. I remember we would um we, we basically had charismatic gifts, you know, increased faith. That's absolutely what we did. Governments or leadership ability, which connect with certain offices in the church and helps connect to the services of the poor and sick. That's what we did together. And um, it was myself and just Christians, other Christians, but I was with adults who... They just rolled with me, but they were believers. They just liked hanging out with me. And plus, I was ne- usually when I was nearby their home, their my home, which wasn't that far apart. So um, I remember sometimes during the week, they would take me to church with them. You know, when church would have like, you know, get-togethers that would have meals or people just chilling on the ch- in the church property and, you know, members. And so, I, you know, and they would just have gospel music and being in church. I remember going to church sometimes with them. I wasn't going every Sunday because my parents um, were not the type to go every Sunday at that time. But I remember during the week, I would, they would take me to church. They were the type of people, even if you don't go on the weekend, you have to go to church at least during the week. That way, if you don't go on the weekend, your soul is, your soul is still baptized, saved, Holy Ghost filled. So because I carried myself in such a mature Christian manner, they already assumed, oh, you already baptized. You already saved all the Holy Ghost filled. But at that time, I wasn't baptized. I was saved because of my interaction with my grandma Claire. I was Holy Ghost filled because of my interaction with my grandma Claire. But I didn't get formally baptized until I was nine years old. But in their mind, I was baptized before I was baptized. And... I just remember um, at that time, they were encouraging me to be televangelists. Um, we encouraged each other to be televangelists to really take faith seriously. 
Um, and so that's what I remember. And uh, we just bonded over preaching. Um, you know, like the kind of... We, we knew a lot about preaching styles. We were into expository... They would encourage me to do expository preaching, topical preaching, narrative preaching, evangelistic preaching, apologetic preaching, prophetic preaching, inspirational devotional preaching, because they noticed that I, I'm good at all these kinds of preaching. They're like, you have all these preaching gifts. And then they... Um, Encouraged me to do African American black preaching. They encouraged me to do um, biographical preaching, pastoral preaching, event you know, televangelistic preaching. Um, they encouraged me to do a. Illustrated preaching, liturgical preaching, hortatory preaching, exhortational preaching, youth or youth-centric preaching, because they saw these preaching gifts that I still have to this day. Um... I would... Sometimes I would do verse-by-verse preaching... I would do contemporary preaching. I would do culture preaching, historical preaching, audience-focused preaching. Um, I would do historical preaching, storytelling preaching. I remember... um, Some... My my entertainment-based preaching was not about emotionalism. It was all about... I knew how to preach in a way that was just naturally entertaining. I wasn't forced entertainment. But the God's wisdom was the entertainment. That's what made them go, ooh, yeah. And I I did preacher-focused preaching, but... I made sure that the spotlight was on the personality and charisma of Jesus Christ. I'm like, he's the preacher y'all should be focusing on instead of me. And that was my attitude. I um, I did slave narrative preaching, you know. To me, that's preaching about what God did for our ancestors. So all these preaching gifts they would encourage me to do. And I do remember um, when I was in the crime world, I remember um, performing exorcisms on some of the rapists, uh, some of the killers, some of the stick-up artists, robbers and thieves, burglars, because... They would talk as if there was more than one person inside of them. 
You know how in movies, the typical demon-possessed person, there's many voices coming out of one person? They would talk like that. So what I would do is... I would, when they would do the foaming at the mouth and they would have the Michael Jackson thriller type eyes, but bloodshot in the veiny face. And they would have these canine um, type teeth of fangs like a wolf and in their mouth. And they would talk as if they were inhabited by more than one being and I remember quoting scriptures quoting the Nicene and Apostles creeds to them I remember quoting biblical stories to them I remember talking from the heart and I remember stating all the names of Christ all the names of God to them and I remember the doing the power of Christ compels you. I was into faith healings at the time. I do remember, um, you know, just at that moment, I would get into fist fights with some of these people who I believed at the time were inhabited by more than one being legion I remember calling them legion legion meant thousands of demons in one person so I would say you're legion Satan you have your demons in this person and they will respond to me as if they were Satan and I believed I was actually dealing with the devil and his demons and devils Um, I remember prophesying against them and prophesying for Jesus, him. I remember casting out devils. Usually, I mean, sometimes it happened the easy way. I would tell them, leave out this woman and never re-enter her. And she she would go from using profane language and anti-religion language to being her regular self again. Very kind, polite. With the guys, it was hard. But if it, but usually they went the, but sometimes they went the easy way. They went from making obscene, vulgar statements against God and religion and church and the Bible and Christianity and all religions and all denominations to, I would tell them, depart, never come back when it comes to this this man, and the man would be kind and polite like the woman. And they would get dizzy, disoriented, and I would nurse them back to health. I would give them water, and, you know, I would give them um, healthy food to eat and just have them rest. And they were like, what was happening? What was wrong? 
And I remember telling them, well, you know, I didn't want to scare them. So I said, um, God is protecting you from spiritual wickedness in high places. And they really liked that I said that. They said, I was saying and doing stuff normally I don't, I don't do. And I just don't remember a lot of what I was saying and doing. It just felt weird. And I said, the Holy Ghost protects you. That's what I said. And they appreciate that because they were, um, you know, they had some inclination towards God, but life went wrong for them. They were failed miserably. That's why they were doing criminality. And I remember... um, Looking back on as a child, I felt like, oh, they rape and kill and rob and stick up artists and thieve around and shoot because Satan and his demons and devils are making them do it. That's what I believed at the time. Um, unfortunately, the demons did re-enter and, that, and they, they eventually went to jail. A handful re-entered and they went up in prison and the rest ended up murdered um, because of their criminal lifestyle. But most of the demons did what I t- in my, well, this is what I believed as a child, most of the demons did what I told them to do. They left and never came back because it's understood if you come back you're going to get way more scripture. I'm going to sing way more gospel hymns. I'm going to sing way more old Negro spirituals. I'm going to talk about Jesus nonstop. And in my belief at the time as a child, the demons knew, okay, Antonio's really about Jesus. Let me go on ahead and leave him alone. And sometimes I remember a couple of the demons tried to re-enter two men. And I got into a fist fight with the demons. In my mind, I'm, I was literally cursing out Satan, his demons, and devils. So the guy, so the guy, once I was able to punch the devil out of that person, I was able to punch the demons out and Satan out of that person. He woke up in pain and I said, I was getting eat. I was getting um, Lucifer and his homies out of you, man. So, top of those guys, you know, got hospital treatment. They made a full recovery, but they were cool with me because I wasn't hitting them. I was hitting Satan and his demons, physically, because the demon would listen. That Satan and demons would listen when I told them get out. Get get out of them, leave them alone. I was verbally abusing Satan. I was cursing out Satan, dropping expletives on Satan and his demons and devils. Now with the women, I just kept talking about Jesus nonstop. And I remember the women, it was two demons trying to re-enter two women. And I just wouldn't stop talking about Jesus and the demons just said, you know what? I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore. So the women were just like, Antonio, thank you, man, because I felt like I was losing my mind going nuts, crazy. And I said, you know, 
Satan and his crew won't bother you no more. And they were happy with it. And the, and the two women and two men, we, we was cool with each other. They These two men and two women were not in crime. Some of the people, I felt like I was performing successful exorcisms on as a child. Some were involved in crime and some were not. The ones that were involved, weren't involved in crime were able to live more than successful lives after that. They had personal accomplishments, professional accomplishments. The ones that stayed in the crime world, um, they ended up jailed or murdered. Now, the ones who started in the crime world got demon-possessed in my mind as a child at the time and chose to leave the crime world. Professional accomplishments, personal accomplishments. They went on to live great lives. So, as this is what I believed as a child at the time. I kid you not. And I remember, um, you know, we had, like, when I was talking to the Christians... As a child, I do remember that um, we also had a um, shared love for believing in original sin. For believing in hell, eternal conscious torment, um, for believing in the everlasting heaven, um, For believing in the literal physical return of Jesus, we bonded over those all these beliefs. We bonded over the beliefs of the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, the literal physical return of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except in me. John chapter 14, verse 16. Placing a central focus on Christ who didn't work on the cross is the only means for salvation, forgiveness of sins. Um, the higher view of Scripture being the authoritative word of God. The belief in the authority of the Bible is God's re- revelation to humanity. The beliefs in Bible prophecy, Bible inerrancy, biblical infallibility, biblical literalism. The Bible, its original manuscript, is the final authority in all matters on which it speaks on all matters of faith and religion in all subjects. Um, we bond, We also bonded over the belief in sola scriptura um, that posits the Bible as the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice in all subjects. So these are the conversations we would have with each other. And um, I just remember that they were encouraging me to um, 
to never deny Jesus, like my grandma says. So many people go, well, you did that. You did an episode a while back where you said the religious Jesus is not the Messiah. He's the, he's the false Messiah. Here's why you're wrong. And I say that respectfully. I was saying that the that conservative theology Jesus is not the Messiah. I was also, more importantly, truly saying that I see the liberal progressive theology Jesus as the Messiah. That's what I was saying. Because with liberal progressive theology Jesus... It is impossible to um, attach discriminatory traditions, discriminatory policies, discriminatory ideas, discriminatory practices, discriminatory laws, discriminatory institutions, discriminatory systems, discriminatory industries, discriminatory entities, and discriminatory individuals on the liberal progressive theology Jesus. Now, conservative theology, Jesus, of the right-wing kind, causes billions of people to suffer from discriminatory traditions, discriminatory policies, discriminatory ideas, discriminatory practices, discriminatory laws, discriminatory institutions, discriminatory systems, discriminatory industries, discriminatory entities, and discriminatory individuals. And I also feel like that that's the same Jesus who is the free living, free thinking, free loving, free spirited Jesus. That one's the son of God to me. The type of Jesus that's not the son of God to me is the religious right Jesus. No, not him. I'm just telling you the images of Jesus that are therapeutic to my adult self and my child self, you know. Even though um, as a child I was taught conservative theology, um, I recognize that... um, I was, I still feel like the liberal progressive theology Jesus, also known as the free living, free loving, free spirit, free thinking Jesus. That Jesus is the divine to me. The type of Jesus not the divine to me is the right wing conservative theology Jesus, also known as the religious right Jesus, also known as the fascist, authoritarian, totalitarian dictatorship Orwellian dictatorial regime Jesus he's not the divine to me
And um, as I got older, those thoughts of Jesus when I was a child and um, I must admit that I've always been bothered by the fact that um, Jesus was made white even though he definitely looked like me. I dare say he was darker skinned than I am. I'm caramel complexion. He was cocoa complexioned. It says The evolution of the image of Jesus over time becoming more white and European is a metaphor for religion in general. It changes to to facilitate the needs of the times, both cultural and political. Needless to say, if Jesus was a real person, his scholars and historians say he was a real person, then he was not white following was taken from Ranker.com. Okay, here's my commentary from my heart. Jesus was black. Jesus was dark. Jesus was pitch black. Jesus was as black as pitch. Jesus was pitch dark. Jesus was jet black. Jesus was inky. Jesus was coal black. Coal black. Jesus was blackish. Jesus was... Sable, meaning black. When I say Jesus was inky, Jesus was as dark as ink. And Jesus was Stygian, very dark. Let's keep going. In general, the New Testament gives little description of the appearance of Jesus or anyone else for that matter. The few descriptors that do exist are hardly foolproof evidence. Well, some people feel that way and some people don't feel that way. As they describe Jesus in some crazy, not-of-this-world terms. Um, again, some people feel that way, some people don't. I mean, crazy can be subjective. And not-of-this-world could be subjective, depending upon who's interpreting through each lens. I would say 
my statement on what I just read to you is that in the ancient world, people weren't as focused on physical appearance as we are in our modern time. Back then, they did not have cameras on phones. They did not have cameras at all. So you had to remember the good times in your mind. You couldn't just take out a photo album and go, oh, I remember. No, you had to really savor the moments. Um, Because once the moment passed, there was no uh, photographic recollection of it. Um, They relied on carvings. To some extent, paintings mostly carvings. Now, we have YouTube. They didn't have YouTube back then. So, they were more focused on your character and your reputation and less focused on attributes and externality or externalness, if you want to call it that. Um, Our society is more focused on looks and appearance. That's why the scripture, when it says God focuses on the heart and um, that's what looks at the God looks at the heart means he focuses on the heart. Man looks out the word of parents. Man looks at the man focuses on the heart. Focus, man focuses on the word of parents. That was how the ancient persons felt that way back then. Of course, they did have some preoccupation with appearance because of the physical descriptions in the Bible, but because they're human. But they had to be more who are you more than what are you our society's more what are you than who are you so that's what happens some people think that the scriptures of jesus are crazy some people don't some people think that jesus was describing out of this world and some people don't some people think that the few descriptions are hardly foolproof evidence and some people don't it's up in the air right Depending upon who you're talking to. And then it says, In John's vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. His face was like the sun shining at its brightest, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. Obviously, this depiction speaks to Jesus less as a human being and more as God, and it doesn't really state his racial makeup other than as a bronze-footed, white-haired, shiny man with fire eyes. So, in other words, in that description, Jesus had Afro-textured hair, he had kinky hair, he had nappy hair. And he had a... He had um, his hair. He basically had the kind of hair that black people have. 
Jesus was a Jewish black man. He was a black Jew. He was a black Jewish man. Jesus had the Jesus had the same dark colored skin that you would see of sub-Saharan African ancestry. He was Jesus was of the very darkest color owing to the absence of or complete absorption of light, the opposite of white. But a lot of times racism makes black and white in terms of pigmentation, good versus evil. No, I'm not doing that. And in the Malcolm X movie, it showed that people have always assigned all the negative character attributes that are assigned to humans in reference to blackness. Like, they would say that black means dumb or black means mentally ill or black means lazy or black means evil. No, blackness doesn't mean any of those things. I dare say that blackness means integrity, substance. Blackness means care, concern, and compassion. Now, you don't have to be black to have all these good character traits. I know that. I'm just saying blackness has to stop being assailed and assaulted. Let's keep going. Old Testament descriptions speak of the coming Messiah, which Christians believe to be Jesus, and describe him as fairer than the children of men. Psalms chapter 45, verse 2. You know, some people who follow Jesus may not call themselves Christians, but they may see him as the divine figure. I just wanted to state that. Let's keep going. It says, in a verse in Lamentations, believed to refer to Jesus, states, Her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They are more swarthy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. Their, vis- their visage is blacker than coal, according to chapter 4, verse 7 through 8 um, of the book of Lamentations. So while pure than snow, the Nazarites' visage, also known, also known as their faces, were black. Does this give you a clearer picture? I also want to state that... Um, I do believe that Jesus was a neurodiverse individual. I believe that Jesus had autism. I believe that Jesus was neurodivergent. I believe that Jesus was... 
neurodistinct. Um, I believe that Jesus had Asperger's. I believe that Jesus had high-functioning autism based upon his his verbal and nonverbal mannerisms. Notice to those not labeled high-functioning and and no diss to those who labeled low-functioning. It's just based upon his thought patterns, his speech patterns. I believe that Jesus and autism rights do have a relationship. And you're probably wondering, what does race have to do with a label? Well, I feel like... I believe that Jesus can connect to the black autistic experience because I believe that Jesus was a black autistic. Um, Because... He wasn't neurotypical by the way he treated people that were less than, according to society. He was truly outside the box. Now, you can be non-autistic outside the box, but when you're autistic, you're more outside the box than those outside the box and Jesus habitually outside the box I believe that Jesus can relate to me in terms of the black autistic pride community that we are and then it says this imagery is most likely meant in a figurative sense but it gives cause for misinterpretation of the literal image of Jesus Personally, I think that the literal Jesus he had the same skin color as Louis Armstrong. Then it says, and these descriptions even change depending on the version of the Bible we read. The color white is frequently symbolic appearing in the Bible. Black can blackness can be a, can be symbolic of purity too now. No color owns the concept of purity. I just have to say that. Then it goes on to say Jesus is frequently referred to as the Lamb of God, and the Holy Spirit is often depicted as a white dove. In my opinion, in my view, Us black folks, we're black dove, right? And I feel that holiness can be black, not just white. White people don't own holiness. White people don't own purity. Purity is not about race. It's about one's heart. And it says... This long-lasting association between the color white and goodness slash purity could be part of the reason Jesus was depicted as white. 
It has everything to do with the fact that she, you know, many people who value prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism by individual, community, or institution against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority or marginalized, they love to say that Jesus champions their racial discrimination. They say to themselves, Jesus champions our racism. Jesus champions our racialism. Jesus champions our racial prejudice. Jesus champions our xenophobia. Jesus champions our Trumpism. Jesus champions our Nazism. Jesus champions our Ku Klux Klanism. Jesus champions our apartheid. Jesus champions the belief that different races possess distinct characteristics, abilities, or qualities, especially so as to distinguish them as inferior or superior to one another. Jesus would look at those people and call them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, the children of hell, snakes, should I say brood of vipers, foxes like Herod, bad trees bearing bad fruit. And he would call them The children of Satan, you say Satan is your father. Let's keep going. Or alternatively, it could explain a larger misunderstanding of interpreting figurative whiteness from the Bible as liter as a literal light skin tone. Anyone can have a conscious or appear that it's white like snow, and it doesn't necessarily mean their racial appearance is white. I don't put a color to purity. I don't like the association between color and purity. Mine is more of your heart is pure. Your skin can be pale. Your skin could be black. Your skin could be beige. It doesn't matter. What matters is What type of personhood are you? The connection between the color of white and purity has long been misused to justify racism, slavery, and Jim Crow segregation. And I dare say that Jesus would look at the Proud Boys today and call them blind fools and blind guides.
And by studying the Gospels, I recognized that Jesus was abused. Jesus was used for a bad effect or for a bad purpose. Jesus was misused. Jesus was misapplied. Jesus was misemployed. Jesus was mishandled. Jesus was exploited. Jesus was perverted. Jesus was taken advantage of. Jesus was made to feel like he was a pushover. Jesus was made to feel like he was a doormat. I'm not saying he was a doormat. I'm not saying he was a pushover. What I'm saying is is that the Roman Empire and the religious and political groups of his day tried to make him feel all these kinds of ways. Jesus was not a weakling. Jesus stood up for himself. He stood up for the oppressed. Jesus took a knee for himself, but more importantly, he took a knee for, for the oppressed. In Jesus' mind, he stood up for God, and he took a knee for God. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus was maltreated. Jesus was treated with cruelty or violence, especially regularly or repeatedly. Jesus was ill-treated. Jesus was treated badly. Jesus was ill-used. Jesus was handled slash treated roughly. Jesus was knocked around. Jesus was manhandled. Jesus was mauled. Jesus was molested. Jesus was interfered with. Jesus endured indecently assault. Jesus was sexually abused. Jesus was sexually assaulted. Jesus was groped. Jesus was assaulted. Jesus was hit. Jesus was struck. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was injured. Jesus was hurt. Jesus was harmed. Jesus was damaged. Jesus was wronged. Jesus was bullied. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was oppressed. Jesus was tormented. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was beaten up. Jesus was roughed up. Jesus was done over. Jesus was not looked after. The improper use of Jesus. The cruel and violent treatment of Jesus. And some people will go, how could you say sex crimes happened to Christ? Well, they gambled for his clothes. And there were times where his clothes were removed from him. And the Roman guards... I'm not saying this happened to every crucifixion victim, but... There was a history of many crucifixion victims being raped before they were hanging on the cross, before they were nailed to the cross, before they were stretched wide and hung high on the cross. And because Jesus was behaving in ways that were threatening to the religious and political groups of his day, especially Roman Empire the most, I think there was a strong and high probability that he was raped before he was crucified. Um, If you are a champion of the underdog and you're claiming messianic powers, I couldn't for the life of me fathom why they would not rape culture him and physical abuse culture him. Christ was jumped 
jumped is street slang for multiple people beating one person. The Roman guards took him and beat him. And besides, Jesus was crucified fully naked on the cross. Now you understand why I feel the way that I feel. And remember, a crown of thorns shoved through his scalp. The Roman guards took a sword and blood and water was said to have come out of him. They didn't even bother to break his leg. His leg was already broken before they came along at the time of his murderous, violent, fearsome, gruesome death. And I feel like um, I relate to Jesus in so many ways. We both know what it's like to be child prodigies. We both know what it's like to be considered crazy. We both know what it's like to be countercultural for all the right reasons. We both know what it's like to have our family members doubt us and our greatness. We, we know what it's like to have a zeal for God at a very young age. We know what it's like to be betrayed. We know what it's like to be abused. Um, we know what it's like to be sexually harassed. And we know what it's like to be victims of organized crime. And you know how I know that to be true? The religious leadership broke their own laws just to have Jesus put to death on trumped up charges, no pun intended. And we know what it's like to be victims of fickle people. Loudly praise us, loudly condemn us. We both know what that's like. Jesus was put to death due to the the sham trials that actually happened to him. That's what I mean when I say victim of organized crime. We both know what it's like to witness embezzlement. Judas actually took money from Christ as the treasurer. I, as a child, witnessed bank robberies and um, crime families stealing from one another financially and materialistically. Jesus and I are both black. Jesus and I came from humble beginnings. I was born to a single mother, lived in a, lived in a series of apartments as a toddler and as a child. Jesus was born in a manger. He was a newborn, so people had to change his diapers and potty train him. We were not born to the 1%. 
We were born disadvantaged. Jesus and I know what it's like to be prophetic, to preach, to teach, to heal. We both know what it's like to be made fun of. We both know what it's like to party, to dance. We both know what it's like to enjoy ourselves at social events. We both know what it's like to have very difficult lives at very young ages. His was more extreme than mine because I had some human rights protections. He had no human rights protections. Human rights was not considered a concept when he was growing up and at the time of his death. We both know what it's like to have women who appreciate us for not being male pigs. We both know what it's like for our existence to be doubted. We know what it's like to have people not believe in us and not believe us. I'm not comparing myself to Christ. I never would do that. That's blasphemous. That's heretical. I'm just saying that Jesus and I have a lot in common and we share plenty of similarities. But I would never say that I'm a, that I'm a, I'm a Messiah of the Messiah because both are false. I don't have the God complex. I don't have the Messiah complex. What I will say is that I know we know what it's like to have a large following. We know what it's like to be economically violated. Unemployed for years, me. Jesus, unemployed for three years. He walked away from regular work. Mine was five. Not to compete with Jesus, I'm just, you give a better understanding why I had such an affinity for him. We both know what it's like to be born under scandalous situations. Jesus' mother had him in what we now modernly call adolescence. My mother had me when she was 20. But Mary's was scandalous because she had him and Joseph was like, hey, I didn't impregnate you. And my mother had me out of wedlock. I remember reading Jesus and understanding that I see why my enslaved ancestry were devout followers of his. Because my ancestors had it worse than me. There are actual laws against their blackness, against their flesh, against their spirits, against their minds, their hearts, their bodies, their souls. There were actual laws against their taste, touch, hearing, sight, and smell. There were actual laws against all areas of their black lives. So, yes, my ancestors had a much stronger devotion to Jesus than I did. And did. And do. And... That makes sense to me. I will never say I had it worse than my ancestors because that's a lie. 
Plus, I don't want to sling mud on their name and their legacy. But I will say that my ancestors and I, you know, our devotion to Jesus is because we both experienced immeasurable brutality. And my ancestors were like, well, we're lynched, hanging on a tree. Jesus was lynched, hanging on the cross. So it makes perfect sense to me why they called themselves Christians. And they called themselves Christians for all the right reasons. Me, I called myself, I called myself Christian for all the, you know, I called myself Christian for all the right reasons. Um, because I, li- I had a slave narrative type of childhood. Now... I don't want to insult my ancestors because their life was a slave narrative all the time. My life is not a slave narrative all the time. No diss to them. I'm just being factual. And, uh... So whenever I read slave narratives, I felt affirmed. Whenever I read the words of Jesus, I felt affirmed because I'm like, wow, Jesus and the slave narrative writers actually speak to me. We know what it's like to be miraculous to people, me and Jesus. We know what it's like to do what's never been done before that's positive. We both know what it's like to say what's never been said before that's positive. We both know what it's like to think thoughts never been thought out before that's positive. We both know what it's like to feel emotions that never been felt of feelings before that's positive. So, I remember when I was um, also in the crime world, I remember that me and the Christians at the time, we bonded over Jesus being a Galilean Jew. Palestinian Jew. We bonded over Jesus being circumcised, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus beginning his own ministry, and Jesus being referred to as a rabbi. We both we bonded over the fact we we bonded over Jesus engaging in healings, Jesus debating with fellow Jews how best to follow God, Jesus teaching in parables because we love stories with wisdom at the center. We loved the, we loved Jesus gathering followers. We bonded over Jesus being arrested in Jerusalem, tried by the Jewish authorities, turned over to the Roman government, crucified in order of Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect of Judea. We bonded over Jesus after his death. His followers believed he rose from the dead, and the community they formed eventually became the early Christian church, and that Jesus' teachings in life were initially conserved by oral transmission, which was the source of the written gospels, meaning the accounts of his teachings in life. And we bonded over Jesus being the incarnation of God the Son, the awaited Messiah the Christ, as prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. We bonded over being Christians. We bonded over Jesus being a first century Jewish preacher, religious leader. We bonded over Jesus being the central figure of Christianity, the world's largest religion. 
we bonded over Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin named Mary, performed miracles, found the Christian church, died by crucifixion, sacrificed to chief atonement for sin, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven for where he will return. As a child, we bonded over, you know, believing that Jesus enables people to be reconciled to God. And we, we believed in, we bonded over believing in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the second coming of Jesus, um, the Holy Trinity, um, Good Friday, Christmas, uh, December 25th is his birthday, and we bond over Easter Sunday. So those were the beliefs that we had. And, um, we bonded over Jesus' father being Joseph. And, um, we, uh, bonded over, um, we bonded over Jesus being born in the reign of Herod the Great. We bonded over Jesus being an itinerant sage who shared meals with social outcasts. We bonded over Jesus practicing faith healings without the use of ancient medicine or magic, relieving afflictions now modernly considered, you know, psychosomatic. Um, We bonded over Jesus walking on water, feeding the multitude with loaves and fishes, change water into wine and raise Lazarus from the dead. We bonded over Jesus being executed as a public nuisance and for claiming to be the Son of God. And we bonded over the empty tomb. And we bonded over Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem and crucified by the Romans. We bonded over the belief in the resurrection based on the visionary experience of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle Mary Magdalene. Yes, Jesus did have female apostles. You can say disciples, apostles, you're basically saying the same thing. (laughs) So that's what we bonded over. We would often pray together. We would be um, intercessory prayer warriors for each other. I'm just telling you what my childhood like, what we would talk about. And I remember... Um, and it was just a, a, a therapeutic time for me in my life at the time. We bonded over being church people. I mean, you know, we just... Um, We bonded over ministries and serving ministries, participating in ministry. I do remember that as a child, too. So I was surrounded by Christians as a five-year-old. I basically became a Christian. Before I became a Christian in the physical church, I became a Christian of my grandma, Clara. I remember being baptized before being baptized. I was Holy Ghost filled before I was Holy Ghost filled. I was saved before I was saved. I accepted Christ in front of my grandma for accepted Christ in front of the whole church. And I was in the church, even though I wasn't in the church, I wasn't going to church every Sunday, every weekend, but I was in the midst of church people quite often as a child. And, uh, 
Mm. I'm just glad I'm healing that, you know, the faith part of my life. Um, there's more. It says, after Jesus' death, being his known homie wasn't exactly considered cool. Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire for several centuries after his death, and followers therefore relied on symbols to represent their religious beliefs and secretly connect with one another. These symbols include the Ichthyos, the the Jesus fish still prevalent today, and the Chiro, a monogram of the letters Chi, X, and Rho, P. The first two letters in the Greek word Christos meaning Christ. Um, as a child, I know what it's like to be persecuted for being a Christian. And a lot of people say that so loosely, irresponsibly. The abusers profanely and obscenely told me that the reason why they were persecuting me, the number one reason was because I was a Christian. The number two reason was because I was autistic but they said it they said that profanely and obscenely and I remember the ways they persecuted me was rape beatings verbal insults and just having me in the organized crime world I know it's like to almost be killed for following Christ. I remember there were times where I would tell, I would order the the uh, abusers and criminals to kill me. The ones that were making me endure verbal religious persecution and non-verbal religious persecution. They wouldn't do it. They would put their deadly weapons away. Guns mostly, sometimes knives. I would. I remember telling them to shoot me to heaven. Shoot me to my God, and they chose not to. They liked the idea of me not being relieved of my of their agonies against me. Let me keep going. It says, unfortunately for historians, this means that there are virtually zero depictions of Jesus from the time when people actually might have accurately remember what he looked like. Womp, womp. Mm. Well, like I said, I, I believe that Jesus was... He was maybe between 5'1 or 5'5, five, five, or maybe he was at least 5'5, five, five, up there with six feet. I mean, the Shroud of Turin um, shows a tall man. And the Shroud of Turin, in a lot of ways, resembles how Jesus died. So, all I know is Jesus was over five feet tall. Because the average height of Judean men at that time was at least, it was either 5'1 to 5'5. But, Jesus could have been taller than that. And maybe because of the Shroud of Turin. It's a possibility, allegedly. Um, Then it says, In the 6th century, 
Byzantine artists began portraying a white-skinned, middle-haired, parted, bearded Jesus. Why did they do this when the earliest depiction of Jesus showed him with a darker complexion, a brown-faced, caramel-complexioned man? I saw those depictions. According to biblical scholar Christina Cleveland, in reality, Jesus would have been an ethnic minority even during his lifetime. Even then, Jews were marginalized by Romans, Greeks, and other non-Jewish groups in many imperial cities. Now, she's right. That is absolutely true. I've done my research. She's telling the entire truth. And I feel that Jesus would have had a philosopher's beard. He would have had scraggly facial hair at the time. And his hair would have been short. He may have had... hair on his head but it was not long because that was not the style for Jewish men to wear their hair at the time and then it says and Jesus wasn't a silent minority either in the Bible he's quite the rabble rouser literally organizing grassroots efforts to aid the poor and needy against the rich and powerful Probably not the image of God the Roman Empire really wanted to shout from the rooftops. Definitely not, I'll say. Less radical and less brown made for a better deity in the racist Roman imagination and directly contributed to the white Jesus of the mythological nature so prevalent today. Hmm. I have always been offended by seeing white Jesus, white disciple, white women apostles, when they would show them with Jesus or say, oh, that's Mary, Jesus' mother, that's Mary Magdalene. And I think to myself, it was worse because I would see these in predominantly black churches. I'm like, how can you Christianize white supremacy in blackface? How can you Christianize white supremacy in paleface? That's what I was thinking at the time when I was a child. Then it goes on to say, by the 5th century, was Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity... I dare say false conversion to Christianity because there's no definitive proof that he took communion. And he was baptized on the day of his death. Some, uh, you know, some hours away from his death. And he killed, he, he killed members of his family. Um, the military industrial complex, Rome, the Roman Empire was number one at that. That's why America in a lot of ways is the modern version of the Roman Empire. He killed his wife and son because he felt like his wife and son were having incestuous, adulterous affairs with each other. And they would 
and the Romans wouldn't would play a role in like religious wars, religious violence, plundering, stealing, killing, raping, looting, and robbing people in terms of entire towns, entire nations. So even though Constantine, quote unquote, stopped Christians being crucified, he found other ways to crucify people he felt were threatening to his dictatorship. Throne may be an understatement. And then it says, Jesus was all the rage and artistic depiction began to flourish in the Roman Empire. Um, According to the Roman Empire people of the time. The classic representative of Jesus today as a white man with longish brown hair, a beard, and a halo became prolific under Constantine. As the artwork was mostly being created in Rome, it's likely that they painted their messiahs appearing similar to themselves with European features and lighter skin to deepen their own connection to him. So, basically... They believed in the lie of the curse of Ham being that, up, oh, you're black because of sin. You're black because of iniquity. So they racistly equated blackness with sinfulness and blackness with being iniquitous. And, oh, well, it's Christ-like to be white. It's unchrist-like to be black. And black folks are anti-Christ. So they would look at Native Americans and indigenous folks as antichrists. They would look at other Middle Easterners who did not look like them as antichrists. They would look at people of Hispanic descent from Spanish-speaking countries as antichrists. They would look at light-skinned, brown-skinned as, oh, y'all are the Antichrist people. They look at Asian people as Antichrist. They look at non-white Jews as Antichrist. And a lot of them felt like, hey, the greatest miracle Jesus did was being a white man in the Middle East. (sighs) They love to call, they love to make Jesus. out to be this Aryan race champion, which he's not. Jesus feels anger because of them. Jesus feels annoyance because of them. Jesus feels vexation because of them. Jesus feels exasperation because of them. Jesus feels crossness, pun intended, because of them. Jesus feels irritation because of them. Jesus feels irritability because of them. Then it gets worse. 
It says, if Christianity became acceptable and even popular, people realized they didn't have any true physical renderings of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So they did what people do best and started making stuff up. Oh, man. Stereotyping, Jesus. That's just massive depravity. Ugh. Then it says, a forged letter from one... Publius Lieutenant, circa 14 through 37 CE, to the Roman Senate claims to give a physical description of Jesus, saying he is tall, wavy haired, rosy cheeked, and blue eyed. The only problem is that there's pretty much no way this letter was written at the time it claimed to be, and there was no such Lentinus during this time period. And it includes many phrases and references that place its creation sometime around the 13th century. Several other supposed ancient descriptions of Jesus arose during this time, but like the Lentulus letter, they have been dated to the Middle Ages when artistic depictions of Jesus would have already been commonplace and influential. In addition to the documents claiming to be first-hand accounts of what Jesus looked like, many famous quote-unquote miracle images and visions of Christ propped up around the Middle Ages. The image of Edes, for example, supposedly bears the image of Jesus from a towel Christ wiped his face on during his lifetime. But people being like they are are phonies, and this towel image, as well as many other famous artifacts claiming to have captured the face of Jesus are widely dated by historians to the Middle Ages rather than Jesus' lifetime. Wow. I know Jesus is feeling indignation, peak, displeasure, resentment, rage, fury, wrath, outrage, temper, road rage, air rage, irascibility, ill temper, dyspepsia, spleen, ill humor, tetchiness, testiness, waspishness, aggravation, ire, choler, bile, no pleasure, no good humor. And he's feeling a strong, a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or righteous hostility, if you want to call it that. It gets worse. By the Middle Ages, the Roman Empire had been replaced with papal authority. And the time period was marked by crusades, also known as holy wars. There's no such thing as a holy war. Against Muslim forces in and around the Holy Land, also known as Jerusalem. The continual religious fighting during this time was between European Christians and Middle Eastern Muslims. Therefore, from the perspective of the Christian forces, the non-believers and the enemy were non-white. Despite the fact that Jesus probably looked more like these people than Europeans, his image as a white man was crucial to the Crusades and their mission. They certainly wouldn't have painted him to look like the enemy. While popes weren't the ones painting the pictures, artists during this time could have faced some dark consequences, pun intended, for going against the church and its accepted depiction of Jesus. For most starving artists, compromising in their rendering of Christ certainly beat out getting burned for heresy. In addition, artists would want to actually sell their artwork, which would have been difficult if they strayed from the popular mainstream image of white Jesus. Having one agreed upon image of the Savior helped to unify the religion and worked as proof against the naysayers. Ooh. Jesus would definitely look at them.
and called them hypocrites, pot, uh, white sulfurs, plaster saints, humbugs, pretenders, deceivers, dissemblers, imposters, Pharisees, Tartuffs, Cantors, Pietists, and people who indulge in hypocrisy. Jesus would say, y'all love to swindle, y'all love to defraud, you love to cheat, you love to trick, you love to hoodwink, you love to hoax, you love to dupe, you love to take in, you love to mislead, you love to delude, you love to fool, you love to misguide, you love to lead on, you love to inveigle, you love to ensnare, you love to entrap, you love to beguile, you love to double-cross, pun intended, you love to go, you love to cause, and you love to cozy, you love to sharp, you love to mulked. You love to play someone false, you love to fail, you love to be unfaithful to me, you love to be disloyal to me, you love to let me down, you love to betray me like Judas did. And Jesus would say to the racists today, you've been had, you've been took, you've been bamboozled, you've been led astray, you've been run amok. You've been pacified. You've been hoodwinked. These are the the racists are the type of, of monsters who make a show of being moral without Moral faults or human weakness, especially in a hypocritical way. It gets worse. Just like the scriptures, they were, they were, you know. Just like the scriptures that were manipulated by bigots to put Jesus in a better light, white in quotations, as it relates to modern ethics and morality. Um, so was his physical depiction change to present an image that was more relatable to the majority of his followers. It all came down to this. Make... White Citizens Council Jesus Kind... He was not. Make white citizens counsel Jesus God. He was not. And make white citizens counsel Jesus a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He was not. Jesus had black people features, broad nose, large lips. And he had the cheekbones of my enslaved ancestry too. He 
I'm pretty sure he had dark brown eyes as well. What I'm saying is offending the sly like a fox, ravenous wolves. Because I have such a high respect for Jesus, that's why I hate NDAs, non-disclosure agreements in the world of religion. I hate NDAs, non-disclosure agreements outside of the world of religion. I dislike faith-based celebrity culture because it religionizes cults. I dislike secular celebrity culture because it attempts, weekly speaking, W-E-A-K-L-Y, to make cults logical. When it comes, there are sometimes, when it comes to each and every verse of all religious texts, also known as holy books, sometimes I experience doubt, sometimes I experience uncertainty, sometimes I experience unsureness, sometimes I experience indecision. Sometimes I experience hesitation. Sometimes I experience hesitancy. Sometimes I experience dubiousness. Sometimes I experience suspicion. Sometimes I experience confusion. Sometimes I experience question marks. Sometimes I experience queries. Sometimes I experience questions. Sometimes I experience dubiety. Sometimes I experience incertitude. Sometimes I experience diffidence. Sometimes I experience insecurity. Sometimes I experience inhibition. Sometimes I experience unease. Sometimes I experience uneasiness. Sometimes I experience apprehension. Sometimes I experience wavering. Sometimes I experience vacillation. Sometimes I experience irresolution. Sometimes I experience demurral. Sometimes I experience skepticism. Sometimes I experience distrust. Sometimes I experience mistrust. Sometimes I experience doubtfulness. Sometimes I experience cynicism. Sometimes I experience disbelief. Sometimes I experience incredulity. Sometimes I experience unbelief. Sometimes I experience misbelief. Sometimes I experience weariness. Sometimes I experience questioning. Sometimes I experience reservations. Sometimes I experience misgivings. Sometimes I experience suspicions. Sometimes I experience qualms. Sometimes I experience lack of certainty. Sometimes I experience lack of conviction. Sometimes I experience lack of trust. Sometimes I experience lack of confidence slash conviction. Sometimes I experience chariness. Sometimes I experience a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. Sometimes I don't experience certainty. Sometimes I don't experience conviction. Sometimes I don't experience confidence. Sometimes I don't experience trust. Sometimes I experience doubt and all these synonyms for doubt when it comes to all the verses of all the religious texts, also known as holy books. And whenever I experience all these doubts, and all these synonyms of for doubt that I just said to you, when it comes to all the verses of all the religious texts, all the holy books, if you will. I always give myself unconditional grace 
and unconditional mercy. When I say unconditional grace and unconditional mercy, that simply means that I'm gentle to myself, I'm kind to myself, I'm easygoing on myself, I'm not hard on myself. I give myself permission to be fully human. I do not give myself permission to be superhuman. Jesus knows what it's like to have his human rights violated and human rights abused. So do I. Jesus knows what it's like to have his civil and political rights violated and his civil and political rights abused. So do I. Jesus knows what it's like to have his economic, social, cultural rights violated, his economic, social, and cultural rights abused. So do I. Jesus knows it's like to have his equal rights violated and his equal rights abused. So do I. Obviously, his human rights, equal rights, civil and political rights, economic, social, cultural rights were much more violated and abused than my own. But that's the spiritual intimacy I feel with Jesus. And then I recognize that I don't judge myself harshly for sometimes feeling like religion is outdated, harmful to the individuals, harmful to society, an impediment in the progress of science or humanity, a source of immoral acts or customs, a political tool for social control. That's how I feel about religion sometimes. And I do not bash myself for feeling fully human. My child self would say that Jesus is never outdated. Jesus is never harmful to the individuals. Jesus is never harmful to society. Jesus is never an an impediment to the progress of science or humanity. That Jesus is never a source of immoral acts or custom. And Jesus is never a political tool for social control. That's my child self kicking in. And um, there are times where I do experience scientific skepticism. Um, And there are times where I do experience religious skepticism, meaning skepticism, all religious beliefs and all religious practices. My child self would say, I don't have Jesus skepticism skeptical of all the beliefs and all the practices of Jesus. That's my child self. And in my scientific skepticism, sometimes I feel like empirical investigation of reality leads to the most reliable empirical knowledge is just that the scientific method is best suited to verifying assaults and attempting to evaluate claims based on verifiability and falsifiability. Sometimes I feel like, you know, accepting claims rely on faith or anecdotal evidence is worthy of discouragement, but um, my child self would say that 
Jesus is best suited to verifying assaults that Jesus is the most reliable empirical knowledge, that Jesus is the empirical investigation of reality, that evaluate claims based on Jesus and how Jesus defines verifiability, how Jesus defines falsifiability, and relying on the anecdotal evidence in that Jesus is, and relying on the convictions of Jesus the way to go. That's how my that's what my child self would say. And um as I close out this episode, I just want to admit that I remember being the prayer warrior for many women and men in the crime world, outside the crime world, directly and directly. And sometimes I was maligned for being openly Christian. I just kept being Christian anyway. And what I mean by prayer war sometimes when women would tell me they were, you know, brutalized or raped the men too. Uh, and they would get beat. I would pray for them. Then I would physically protect them and bloody pulp those who made them bleed. I was not a pacifist as a child because organized crime discourages pacifism. Um, I would pray before I would call the police on those who attacked innocent people, men, women, and children. And I would pray that they would repent in jail and experience God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's redemption, God's God's repentance offers for them in jail. So as I wrap up this episode, I just want to say that, um, you know, the gospel, I would play gospel music with the men, women, children sometimes, and we would really enjoy ourselves. So, thank you all for letting me share with you all. One more thing. There are unpleasant people who are believers in theists, and there are unpleasant people who are unbelievers and non-believers. But most people in the faith-based community are pleasant, and most people in the secular community are pleasant. And there's, for me, um, I've also learned that um, it's so important to avoid intellectual arrogance, whether you're faith-based or secular, and just avoid arrogance of all kinds, whether you're faith-based or secular, and to acknowledge that um, wisdom is not about superiority. It's about humble equilibrium. And 
acknowledge that religious texts have more excellence to them in certain cases. In other cases, they have what is called um, immorality. If the United Nations read certain parts of the of all the religious texts, they would say that there's more excellence to certain passages and immorality to other passages. So, the you know, for example, the Bible is moral to some extent, and then the United Nations would go, "Wow, the Bible's immoral in terms of other passages." What I mean is the human rights um, parts. Of the human rights violations, you know, genocide, um, the statements on women, statements on LGBTQ plus people, and so on and so forth. So, the many people in the human rights world would feel that way. Um, some people are pro-Bible, anti-Bible. Some people take a nuanced approach and go, "Well, the Bible's good. Some things bad. Other things." And um, as long as you are a decent individual, I say, live and let live in the name of doing no harm.